0: Pray. Father, thank you for an opportunity to study your word. And I uh, pray, God, you guide us as we look through this uh, passage in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, Lord, we, more than anything, um, as Justin has prayed multiple times today, God, we just, we, we just want to see Jesus. Uh, we come here to make much of him, not ourselves. Uh, we come here to applaud him, not applaud ourselves. Um, God, we come here to be uh, overwhelmed by, moved by uh, your grace, your glory, uh, so that, God, we can turn around. And be the people, uh, God, you've called us to be to our surrounding community and to people who don't know you. God, would you use this time together to build just that? In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So as uh, I like to do with you quite often, you know this, you're like, oh, we're going back to Genesis again. Start at the beginning, <laughs> okay? Uh, in, the, in the beginning, uh, God, no. In the beginning uh, of Genesis, we find that, uh, that we are created in God's image as human beings, Right? And we find that actually in the first couple chapters of Genesis that we all, every human being in this room and throughout the world, share two parallel identities. Okay? We have two identities. One, we're all made in the image of God. Okay? We're all, Every person is made in God's image, no matter how much they may want to reject that or how much they uh, may not want that, how much they may have tarnished that image. We're all made in the image of God. But the second identity we find that we all share is in Genesis chapter 3 and that is that we're also all sinners, okay? Every one of us in this room, every person in the world, right? We have, uh, we have all tarnished the image of God. We have all rebelled against God, and so we share these two dual um, kind of identities. We've, uh, we've all turned and gone our own way, okay? So we, we share dignity in being made in the image of God, and we share what we call depravity. We're sinners, okay? We've, we've betrayed God. We've walked away. The fact that we're image bearers of God also means the fact that we're all, whether you realize it or not, on the lookout for God this morning, or at least that which only God can fulfill. And because we're sinners, we are bent to look in the wrong place, right? We're bent to look the wrong place to find God. Um, Unlike Jack Sparrow, the throwback there on the movie, our compass, our soul compass does not always point north, right? It points the other directions. It doesn't point towards God. This makes us all incurably religious people because in our hearts, we have a sense that we're not alone in the universe. We're a people who want, right? Every experience, every relationship always leaves us wanting more. As a matter of fact, the greater the experience we have, the more we enjoy something, the more we want to do it again, the more we want to share it with other people. Have right? you ever had that experience, right? You see a great film or something, that's... It seems like a long time ago. Um, it doesn't do that anymore, right? Um, you see a great film, you're like, oh, I want to watch it again, or I want a sequel. <laughs> uh, and a sequel's never good enough, right? It's always bad. Um, and, or I want to share it with other people. Or you meet that special someone, you want to go out again, right? And we meet them again. You go on that vacation, you're like, man, I can't wait to get there again, right? I want to tell other people, you need to go here too. It's fantastic. That's kind of the, the way our hearts were kind of built. Um, and so, but, and that's, uh, but we're never satisfied with whatever the world offers or whatever it may be. It's because, again, it all, uh, it's all meant to point us to the one being who, when we come to, completely and utterly satisfies the soul, and that's Jesus Christ. But instead, we go in silent search, right, of other lovers out in the world. That's why it's so important, uh, as we get to our topic today of mercy, that's why it's so important that we understand that God, God is merciful. Praise God that God is merciful towards us. What does that mean? It means he withholds from us what we do deserve. We have all taken that image, we've tarnished it with sin, and we have rebelled and gone the other direction. Yet God is a God that is merciful. Um, he withholds from us what we deserve. He withholds from us the wrath that we deserve. And the fact that we are living and breathing as air today is proof that God is merciful. And listen to this. He is willing to listen he is willing to bend his ear towards those who will repent and turn to him. That is fantastic. No matter how far down the rabbit hole you have fallen, okay, he is willing to hear, listen, and turn if you will turn to him. But we will never turn to him until we embrace that side of our identity, that side of that we are sinners. That's why when you read, we read the Gospel of Matthew, like you just heard read right a minute ago, that's why uh, the people who knew that they were broken, the people who... Uh, who embraced that they were, were sinners, who accepted that they needed mercy, those were the people that were always flocking to Jesus. They, they knew it, right? That's why they would, they would turn to him in that way. They had gone in silent search of a savior out in the world, right? They had tried to find it, be it in, in people or experiences or material things or whatever. They experienced coming up short. They knew they were sinners. They knew they were broken and knew they were in need of healing. And Jesus met them. And so this becomes, becomes clear in the Gospel of Matthew as we journey through this, as we see story after story, is that God's deepest intentions towards us is one of mercy. It's at the backbone of Christianity, right? Think about that. How could it be otherwise? If the focus of Christianity was our sins, um, then our future would be shut down. It's as if we've been plunged into a dark chasm and no amount of pressing or pushing or shoving the darkness is going to move it out. The only way to remove darkness is to bring in light. There has to be a flood of light that will push out the darkness. And that light is the mercy of God found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He was full of mercy, as we've seen in the Gospel of Matthew. It's like he was almost looking for ways to show mercy, right? He was looking for ways to have darkness shine shine light on the darkness. He was looking for sin to forgive. We've seen this already, right? We saw how he approached the leper back in chapter 8. Uh, the centurion as well, the, the how he approached the, the man who was possessed, uh, the paralytic, Jairus' daughter he raised to life, the woman that was bleeding that he, he helped, the blind man, the mute man, the, the man here in our text with the withered hand. I mean, it's like he's looking for these people, right? He's looking to show mercy. One of the most profound places we see the heart of God for us as people, the mercy of God for us as people, is, uh, is when he, Luke records this story where he approaches the city of Jerusalem. And he's standing outside of it, as it were, like on a cliff you know, overlooking the city. He sees it. And the Gospel of Luke tells us that Jesus cries over it, over the city. The city that he knows is going to reject him. And, he, and, and the language in the Gospel of Luke is that the, it wasn't just like a little sniffle, you know, cry sniffle thing. It was, and maybe you've sadly experienced this before, where you cry so hard that your body shakes. You're just so grieved. You're so hurt Right, and the, your body just shakes. That's the experience. That's the the word used to describe Jesus as He saw people in rebellion against Him, and and, and those those who were who were going to reject Him. And so, um, so that's an important part. It's this mercy, this favor, this pardon that Jesus readily shines on us. That's the only thing that will move our hearts as Christians. That's why we go back again. Just the membership class this morning, we talked about why we always go back to Jesus every Sunday. Um, it's like oh, I always say, it's like. Playing Where's Waldo? You know, Where's Waldo? Where's Jesus? There he is. He's here. Like we're we're always going back again to him because that's important. Because we'll never be a merciful people. We'll never be a gracious people. We'll never be a on mission for God. We'll never talk to people about Jesus until we are marvel at Jesus, right? So we're never merciful until we know that we've been shown mercy. And when we know that and love that, we want to be merciful to others, right? When we understand the grace and we love the grace of God towards us in Christ, and we marvel at that, we become gracious. When I understand the patience that God has shown me in the cross through Christ, I turn, I can be patient now with others. Uh, I, I can be long suffering. Right. The, the, all these things come through the gospel, understanding Christ through me to others. That's why uh, John Calvin, way back in the 16th century, said, "Look, no one will ever reverence God. No one will ever be in awe in God of God, but he who is confident." that God is favorable towards him, when you're confident that God is favorable, God is gracious, God is merciful, then you revere, then you worship, then you're changed, and then you turn around and you do the same to others. So let's look at God's favor towards us in Christ. Let's look at this mercy that will move us to follow Jesus on a mission of mercy. And we're gonna see, as we're gonna see this morning, we see that God's mercy is greater than religion, and we're gonna talk about these religious leaders that really get upset with Jesus. Uh, God's mercy is greater than religion, it's greater than oppression. we talk about this man who was, who was oppressed by a demon and that God's mercy is greater than, than rebellion, okay? Um, so whether you find yourself wrapped up in moralism veiled from God's mercy, whether you find yourself pushed to the margins of society ready to break, like that smoldering wick um, uh, this, that he talks about here, if you feel that way or under attack or even rebelling against God this morning, know that God's mercy is enough. It is readily available to you this morning. God's mercy God's, God's leaning towards you is one of mercy and available to you this morning, okay? Number one, God's mercy is greater than religion, okay? So, starting at verse one, down through verse 21 here, we have two stories. We have, uh, we have one about the grain fields here, where Jesus goes to the grain fields, his followers, his disciples are picking the grains, and you notice that the religious leaders get really upset, right? They get really mad at him. And then he heals a person in the synagogue with a withered hand, and they get mad at him again, right? You're You may be, if you're unfamiliar with these stories or unfamiliar with the Bible, you may be thinking, like, why is that such a bad thing? I mean, the guys were hungry. (laughs) They just picked a little bit of grain, you know? Uh, This guy was obviously in need. Like, why why is that a problem? Let's talk about that. So we find uh, what's going on here. And really, one of the main things that they were upset about, uh, though these may seem like normal things for Jesus to do because he's done these kind of things before and people didn't get upset with him, they got particularly upset with him here because the problem was he did it on the wrong day. Now, I mean, it sounds silly to you, but for, for their opinion, they said, Jesus, you did this on the wrong day. They were upset about that. Uh, he's doing it on a forbidden day. He's doing it on the Sabbath, okay? That was a Saturday, and it was, it was un, un, um, they didn't want him to do that. And they were basically saying something along the lines of, you know, that's good, Jesus, that you have a, a bleeding heart of mercy um, for these sinners, but you need to follow the rules first. We've got some rules for you, especially ours. We've got a list you need to follow, but once you follow that list and you keep yourself in line, okay, fine, you can go be merciful to these people. So they value this, this, this element of finding their identity and their rule keeping as opposed to being a merciful people, okay? So the religious of the day, understand this. Let me do a little bit of history so you understand. They had created uh, their own rules. If you notice, if you read through the Bible before and you get to the Gospel of Matthew, because I remember when I first read through the Bible and I was like I'm 19, I think, or something like that when I first read all the way through, and I got to Matthew and I start reading about these Pharisees, and religious leaders, and I'm like, I didn't see them in the Old Testament. Where'd they come from? <laughs> Where'd they pop up on the scene, right? They were a group of people that had created um, their own rules for other people to follow. They had human rules, To keep people from breaking human rules, to keep people from breaking human rules, to keep people from breaking the rules of God, okay? So you had like multiple kind of layers of rules, um, and and that's what they were kind of laying down. Maybe from a good intention initially, but eventually that got way out of of control. They took the fourth commandment, uh, which was talking about keeping the Sabbath day holy, and they created rules to follow how to do that. And you need to keep their rules of how to keep that rule. Does that make sense? So, for example, they had 39 types of activities, specific activities you must avoid on the Sabbath day. All right? When it says don't work, here's the 39 things you can't do. Uh, one was, uh, one of their rules, actually, one of the 39, which may help explain this, one of the 39 was forbidden to reap. Okay? It was forbidden to reap any grain or any kind of product in the field um, above any, for any given situation, no matter what was going on. Another, uh, they talk about, was forbidden to to work, which included helping people as well as... This has really got them in trouble, because you can imagine how this is. It also prevented on Sabbath day they couldn't work as a military, so they couldn't defend themselves. Well, if you read the history of of Israel and you read kind of what's happened the last couple hundred years before our text here, that got them in a lot of trouble because the other armies got wind of this, they understood it. Guess when they would attack them? On Saturday, right? That is what they would do. Um, And because they were trying to keep the rules... They didn't even defend themselves. Numerous casualties and attacks um, against them during this time. Uh, so in our situations here, here in the text, know that Jesus knew the law of God. He's not, he's not unfamiliar with, with the law of God. He knew all about the Sabbath, so it wasn't new to him. Um, matter of fact, we, we didn't study this part because we, we kind of looking at the, the highlight, the, the actions of Jesus here, but if you go to some of his teaching in Matthew 5, you'll notice that Jesus talks about there, he didn't come to Abolish the law of God, he came to what? Fulfill it, right? So he's not anti-Nomian, we call that, anti-law. Uh, he understands what it is. He wasn't trying to do things um, to, to rub it in their faces, as it were, and throw out the law of God. But he knew that this law, this rule of the Sabbath, this is so important for you to understand, that the rule, of the law of the Sabbath, wasn't so much for God as it was for them. That's why God created the rule. Um, he knew that this law, this rule, wasn't so much again for God but it was as, as much as it was for them. It was God's design to force people to take a break from their blasphemous anxiety to think they were doing God's work for them, for him, right? It was, uh, it was to help them remember that they are not God. You must rest. You must take a break. God doesn't need to do that. You need to do that. You need to remember that. Take a break, okay? So it was designed in good for us as people, for the people of God at that time. They need to rest, Religious leaders and most people still felt, still felt the rules of the Bible were about them and what they needed to do to please God, make God happy, okay? So I've told you this before. I was on the class this morning in our, our new members class. You can read this one of two ways. It's about me and what I need to do for God, or it's about Jesus and what he came to do for me. And in light of that, now I can obey, right? And those are two very different ways of looking at the Bible. Is it about me or is it about him? And so so we find they they missed the point. The religious leaders missed the point and the fulfillment of those rules. The fulfillment of the rules, we find out, was Jesus, which we'll see later. The point was God was telling them how life works, the point of the rule, the point of the law, how we work, how society works. The commands were not something God made up to make us suffer. Do you understand that? The commands of God are not there just because God doesn't like you, <laughs> okay? They're there because he understands how life works. He understands how you work. He understands all the things about us in society. That's why they're there. That's why, uh, listen to this, Deuteronomy six twenty four. The Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God, for our what? For our good, always. <laughs> they might preserve us alive as we are to this day. Uh, Deuteronomy ten thirteen. It says to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding today for your what? Your good. Is it? If you're a parent, haven't you had this conversation numerous times? I'm telling you, you need to do this. I know you don't understand, but I promise you, it's for your good. One day, one day, you will understand, right? You know, you have these conversations where you're like, "Look, I understand. You don't under, you define good a very different way than I do. I, I've been down this road. I understand. You need to do this, right?" And your teens, like, ah, I don't want to do that. And you're like, just trust me, you need to follow this, you need to do this. It's for your good. Right? We've had this conversation. This is God having that conversation with us. It's for your good. God's parenting us. Uh, his parenting of us is not much different than our parenting of our own kids. And so it's pretty much, I think, what interesting you find pretty much for every page of the Bible is God's reiteration of the language of, just trust me. Every page of the Bible, trust me, just trust me, trust me. <laughs> So when we get to our passage with Jesus and the disciples plucking grain and eating it, they were actually, get this, fulfilling the principle, the principle behind the Sabbath. They were taking a break. They were stopping. They were resting. Uh, but the religious leaders were not concerned with mercy or with the needs of people, but rather with their own self-righteous rule-keeping, uh, which is not what God set the Sabbath up for. Okay? You say, now where in the world did this all come from? Like what, Why did they have all these rules above rules above rules? about 400 years prior to our text, okay? There'll be some time between uh, Malachi or if you like um, my ongoing joke about Malachi, the Italian prophet, but um, Malachi, I'm gonna call him Malachi, um, Malachi and Matthew, there's 400 silent years. During that time period is where a lot of this happened. Um, and so the Jewish leaders who kind of emerged during that day created their own rule book, okay? Their own rule book, it was called the, the Mishnah, 800 pages long, That's a lot of rules. Um, shortly afterwards, they also wrote commentary on those rules. Okay, so you have Mishnah, it's a book of rules, and then this thing called a Talmud, which is like a commentary on the rules. So here's, here's how to fulfill the rules, the rules to keep the rules of God. You see that? That's kind of how this works. Just to give you an idea, the, the, one, the, the one Talmud was 12 volumes. That was the Jewish one. The Babylonian one, because they lived in Babylon, they had to have a lot more rules because that was a dangerous place to live, so they had 60 volumes of commentary on how to keep the rules that they set up to keep the rules from breaking the rules of God. So when the Jews returned from Babylon, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, they got exiled, they end up in Babylon, they get back, they come back to the land. This is Nehemiah rebuilding the walls type of thing, Ezra, those books. Um, when they return back from Babylon about 440 BC, okay, that's about a 475 years before our text, they knew that their hopes of national greatness were shot, okay. They just got conquered. They're in exile. We are not going to be a, 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 a nation that's going to conquer anybody. Okay? Therefore, this is important to understand. Therefore, they decided that they would find, this is where the Pharisees, all these people came from, they decided that they would find their greatness in being a people of the law. That's how we'll do it. Since we can't find our identity in being a great nation in terms of defe- you know, defeating other nations, we'll build ours as being um, more people of the law, people who are moral, people who are good type of thing, in hopes that they would score points with God for that. All right, God, we can't beat anybody anymore. We got beat up by everybody, so let's keep the rules enough, and maybe you'll be happy with us, and we'll have a good life. They, like many, even in our country today, put their hopes in national prominence, in hopes of finding a king that would make them a great nation, right? They wanted that, or in this case, priests or religious leaders that would lead them to be a moral people so that God will be favorable towards them. That's what they were doing. Problem with this, of course, is that they are consumed with keeping the rules, keeping score, making sure everyone else is keeping the score. And in doing that, because that's their consuming drive, they miss people, right? They miss people instead of showing mercy to people. They didn't, they didn't show mercy to people. They didn't, they didn't even, this guy who had a withered hand here in our story, no doubt this guy had been there every, every day. They never even noticed him. Didn't care necessarily about him, right? Um, the religious leaders tried to stop Jesus from actually healing this guy, and here was a guy, again, in real need. In the culture, he could no longer, and that culture could no longer work, had a withered hand, was pr- reduced to begging. He was a, a hurting soul in need of mercy and compassion. Jesus showed him that and ironically fulfilled the law in doing so, <laughs> even though they said he was breaking the law in doing so because he wasn't keeping the rules. Jesus then looks at the religious leaders. He tells them, and he gives a story base. He says, like, you guys know you, you do this for a sheep, right? You do this for a sheep. Why? Because it was economically advantageous. The sheep got in the ditch there, you know, get him out of there, right? He's in danger. How much more important, he says, is this man who's in need than a sheep? The obedience to standards, the identity being placed in one's goodness doesn't move the heart to see people and be merciful uh, because your eyes are on you and your performance. You understand that? That's why they didn't see people because it was all consumed with, we're gonna be right, we're gonna keep the rules and we're gonna make sure everyone else keeps the rules and we're gonna judge people who don't keep the rules and make them keep the rules and in doing that here, they missed down here. They didn't see people um, as Jesus wanted them. That was the, kind of the point of even the rules, to see people. Um, and so we find that doesn't happen. Their hearts were, were cold. Look, at, look down at verse 7. Jesus says something very interesting. He says, if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you have not condemned the guiltless. It's an important commentary on this. God desires mercy over sacrifice. It's quote from the book of Hosea in the Old Testament. You say, what does that mean? That's an interesting. When I first read that, I look at that and go, I've read the Old Testament, God. I think you do desire sacrifices. Like, I see a lot of commands around sacrifice this animal, burn offerings. I mean, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you realize there's a, there a lot of sacrifice. Read the book of Leviticus. There's a lot of sacrifices there that God says do it. So I'm like, what does that mean? I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Clearly, clearly God uh, in the Old Testament desired sacrifices. Okay? Not just in the ways of burnt offering, but even in the forms of obedience to his law. But because it wasn't from a heart of love for God, but rather a love for self, the law-keeping couldn't transform them. God wanted them to give sacrifices so that, let's go back to our original conversation here, God wanted to give sacrifices so that they would see the mercy of God and the sacrifice towards them so that they would turn around and be merciful to people like this guy with the withered hand, right? You see what I'm saying? That was the point, but they were obsessed with just doing the rule, and it didn't transform their heart because of their obsession with the rule keeping. It didn't, they missed the whole point behind why God told them to give a sacrifice. And so the only way to be a merciful person is from receiving mercy. No amount of standards pressed upon you or fulfilled by you will make you feel compassion and show genuine mercy to someone in need. Do you understand that? There's no amount of law you can say, hey, you need to be merciful. You need to have a heart of mercy for people. Go do it. Try that. See how that works for you. I mean, it's like impossible. You beat your head against the wall. Like, I want to care. I want to love, but I can't. You You have to see mercy first, okay? You have to have an identity that's wrapped up in mercy and not one wrapped up in moralism and rule keeping, In other words, you have to see yourself as one who's been shown mercy more than seeing yourself as one who keeps the rules. Otherwise, you'll never be a merciful person. I mean, a story to kind of illustrate this. I heard a story, this story one time um, from a pastor. He was teaching on the the principle of Jesus uh, saying um, that Jesus gave about loving your neighbor as yourself. And um, he he explained it this way. Here's what he said. He said, I think what God is saying when he says love your neighbor, this is taking it from the Good Samaritan story in Luke. He said, uh, he said, I think God is saying, I want you to meet the needs of other people with all the joy and all the eagerness and all the urgency and all the ingenuity and creativity with which you meet your own needs. That's what he means. He says, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Sounds like a good explanation. Afterwards, he said, after he was preaching this, a teenage girl came up to him uh, and said, uh, uh, said she came in last, last night in the homecoming um, pageant while her friend won. And so she Good observation. She said this. She said, are you trying to tell me that the Bible says I should be as happy for her as I would have been for myself if I had won? He said, yes. That's a great illustration. Can I use that next Sunday? <laughs> uh, she said, and her statement back was, she said, Christianity is ridiculous. She said, who, who lives like that? And she said, she asked him, she said, who I want to know who my neighbor is. It, it can't possibly be everybody. I can't feel that way for everybody. So you need to tell me who it is. What number of square blocks around my house does this cover? <laughs> I mean, she's trying to just figure it out, right? Do you hear the anxiety in her questions? She's not a, she wasn't necessarily a self-righteous, morally arrogant person, but because she didn't embrace m- the mercy, love, and acceptance of God through Christ, she saw the purpose of keeping the law as a way to assure herself that God would come through for her. God, God had be, in her world, God had become, and this happens to us, even as Christians, we can start thinking this way, right? It's, um, God becomes almost like a puppet on a string, and, and or our, your good works are the strings you're pulling to kind of get him to move, right? Your direction, get him to, to work for you. God becomes a, a kind of a giant slot machine in the sky. Our good works are the coins. We pull it, you know, put the coin in, pull the lever. Okay, God, give me... Bless me now. I've prayed this much. I've read the Bible this much. I've gone to church this many weeks in a row. Now you owe me, right? Kind of thing. Um, out in LA, I lived among a highly Hispanic community, and it was piñatas were the big deal, right? Piñatas were everywhere, kids beating piñatas. And it was like, that's how I kind of view God. God's like a piñata. You, your, stick, your stick is that your bat is the good works. You just, God, I'm doing this. Now you need to yield the good stuff. Give me the candy, right? Give me the, give me the good stuff. Give me the, give, me the, give me the blessings. And so that's kind of how God starts to be, be looked at as. And so she was, this gal was asking, this teenage girl was asking, how much mercy do I need to show for God to be merciful to me? But that was backwards, right? That's a different, totally wrong way of looking at it. You will only show mercy when you see God's mercy for you first. That's why in the story of the Good Samaritan, um, Jesus concluded by asking the question, now who was a neighbor to this guy, right? Who was a neighbor to the guy who was hurt on the street? It wasn't the religious leader, right? It wasn't the priest. The crowd answered him in Luke ten thirty-seven. It says, they said the one who showed him mercy, that Samaritan, who they didn't like very much. It's the one who showed him mercy. Why? Mercy comes from the heart, not from the will. That's why Jesus addresses. Now, if you look down your text, down to verse 33, this is why Jesus addresses the heart, right? Mercy comes from a heart of, uh, it's been seen, shown mercy, right? Um, down there, you'll see that the tree is known by its fruit, the religious leaders were commanded to be merciful and gracious towards the outcast, the foreigner, the marginalized, but they simply couldn't do it, and they didn't do it. They didn't even see the man with the withered hand. Um, they just saw that he was, Jesus was breaking the rules on the Sabbath. This guy with the withered hand wasn't on their checklist, so they didn't even see him. He had probably been there every day, but Jesus saw him, right? Jesus showed him mercy. Look, at, I love the description. Look down at verse 20. A bruised reed, speaking of Jesus here, this is a fulfillment from the Old Testament, A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. That is a beautiful, beautiful description of Jesus. Jesus saw this man, okay, uh, just like he saw everyone else burdened by sin, burdened by Satan, the world system. He saw this man, he saw him as hanging on by a thread. You ever felt that way in your life? You're just hanging on by a thread, right? You're on the edge of the cliff, and you're holding on by a pinky finger, and you're like, I don't think I'm going to hold on much longer, that's what he saw this man, yes. This man had been rejected so many times, pushed outside the social circles. He was ready to give up on life itself. The very people that were supposed to care for him didn't care for him at all and kicked him to the side, but Jesus didn't break him, right? That, that bruised reed, he didn't break him. That smoldering wick that he could have just blew out, he didn't blow it out. He fanned, as it were, the flame. He didn't do that. He showed mercy, and you have to see that this man that's this withered hand man is in the, in the, at the bottom of the, the floor there or at the front door of the uh, of the um, synagogue, is actually just like you and me. My friends, when you see yourself as one who's been shown mercy, you then see others uh, who need mercy. It makes you more sensitive. It really does. When you understand the mercy of God towards you, the grace of God towards you, and many of you can get up here and share the story, you have. You have, as it were, seen Jesus for the first time. It's almost like, I call it like a second conversion. You come to Christ and you start reading. and All of a sudden, you, you realize like, Jesus really, he really did live for me, die for me. Like, it radically transforms your soul. And, and the more you see it, the more you look at it, the more compassion you have towards others. It makes you more sensitive to deformity, to brokenness, to pain. Causes you to identify uh, with those who are most in need. You don't see people in categories anymore. It starts, you stop judging people by categories. And you start seeing them as just people in need. Think about that. You don't see them as uh, they deserve, they don't deserve, right? We can do that sometimes, don't we? Like, this is a deserving person. This is an undeserving person. You don't put them in categories. So, uh, conservative, liberal, Republican, Democrat, right? This is what we, our country is totally messed up over this, right? It's Everyone's in split into categories, and then they paint you in this category, right? This is everything about you. When, when you get mercy, when you get the mercy of God towards you in Christ, you just start to see people as in need, and, and not in categories anymore. The gospel does not say think about this. the gospel does not say, "The good are in and the bad are out." Nor does it say, "The open-minded are in, and the judgmental are out. The gospel says the humble are in, the proud are out. Right? The gospel says the people who, who know they're not better, who know they're not more quote "open-minded or more moral than anyone else or in, are in, and the people who think they're on the right side of the divide are the most in danger. they're religious leaders. Listen, if you find yourself this morning unable to be merciful to others, unable to even see those who need mercy, it's either because you have never received mercy yourself, and you've been playing a church game your whole life, or you've become blind and callous to the mercy you once received. If you're looking for some religiously justifiable way to avoid getting involved in other people's pain, then you don't get the gospel, okay? You need to see mercy, more than the rules. I love how Peter put it, uh, and I'll move on after this. Second Peter 1, he said, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with. And he kind of gives this list. And here's how the list ends. Brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. And if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. If whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. The reason we don't have brotherly affection for others. If the reason we don't have affection for other people, merciful, it's because we have, we've forgotten. This is why we come back to Jesus every Sunday. <laughs> we've forgotten that we were cleansed from our former sins, and that is what's gonna transform us. All right, let's move on. Number two. God's, God's mercy is greater than oppression. Now, down in verse 22, we meet a man who is, um, who is both blind and mute, which is a devastating combination, okay? Think about that. Just to be one or the other would be would be devastating enough. It's hard. But to have both the inability to see and the inability to speak is kind of soul-crushing. Why? Because you can't communicate at all. You can't communicate um, as to how you feel or to have someone help you explain what you can't see. And we find this man is this way, it says in the text, due to a demon oppression. He is held down, as it were, and yet Jesus saw him and Jesus set him free. And as usual in our text, we see the religious leaders didn't like this about Jesus, the act, actually went so far as to call him a demon. We looked at this already, this word, Beelzebul, um, meaning he's accused of being a demon himself, um, being Satan himself, actually. I told you last time, this is a, that was a reference to a Canaanite God who required child sacrifices. That's what they're calling Jesus. And notice his response. Look at verse 25. Knowing their, knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid to waste. No city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? He said, basically, look, if if he was if he was Satan, if let's just let's just lay this let's just walk this road a little bit with you. If he was Satan, then what in the world was he doing casting out his own kind, right? His own group, his own little squad of people. Like why is he casting out demons? That doesn't make any sense at all. That would be counterproductive. He then goes on to describe himself in the passage as being the strong man who binds the strong man, right? Uh, Look at verse 29. How can someone enter a, a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. What Jesus is saying here is that he is God who is able to bind Satan. No one else can do that but God. And he also can throw him out of any residence that he has taken up shop in. You hear that this morning? There's no amount of darkness that Jesus can't shine a light on. There's no amount of oppression that he can't remove, no amount of sin that he can't forgive. And now notice that Jesus gets into how his mercy extends to even this man who is deaf, mute, and oppressed by demons. But there's a limit to this mercy, and it sometimes is misunderstood by people. There's a place, Jesus says, basically, that God's mercy won't reach. And it's to those who refuse his mercy. His mercy will throw off any sin, it will kick out any demon, it will heal any wound, but it won't take heart it won't take root in the heart that rejects the embodiment of mercy itself, and that is Jesus Christ. The one sin that won't be forgiven is the utter rejection of Jesus Christ. It's so the one that won't be forgiven. That's why he says in verse 31, Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Jesus was in The very embodiment of the Spirit of God was in front of them, and they rejected him, um, and that's the reason. David Gooding, a writer, put it this way. He said, God's finger... Think about it. this. is really well said. God's finger was touching them. God was speaking to them. What they had just witnessed was a direct, unambiguous demonstration of the Holy Spirit. Now they must make life's ultimate judgment, and they were at the point of making a decision, which, when, which once deliberately made, would be irreversible and would make deliverance forever impossible. Reject the Holy Spirit, the ultimate good. Call the ultimate good evil. Call truth himself a lie. And God himself has no further evidence left, nothing further to say. God himself is reduced to silence. That was the rejection. They were rejecting Christ. And just prior to this statement, Jesus said people are either with him or against him, up in verse 30, right? He's you're either with me or you're against me. There's no middle ground with Jesus. Jesus will take every bit of you, all of your brokenness, all of your sin, all of your wounds, and he will show mercy. But if you write Jesus off, if you walk away, if you reject the hand of mercy extended to you, mercy will not come, right? You've got to go all in with Jesus. That's what he's saying. And the writer put it this way. He says, how can you live with the terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human, that fire has become flesh, that life itself has become life and walked in our midst? Christianity either means that or it means nothing. It's either the most devastating disclosure of the deepest reality of the world or it's a sham, nonsense, deceitful play-acting. Most of all, unable to cope with saying either of those things, people condemn themselves to live in the shallow world in between. People try to, in other words, they try to stand stay in the middle, like, okay, I'm face-to-face with God himself. That's a little scary. I don't want to get too close. I don't want to run away, so I'm just going to stay in the middle. And Jesus is saying, you can't do that. You're either with me or you're against me. You have a choice. You can slap away the hand of mercy or you can grab it. But if you walk away resolve to basically, you know what, I'm fine. I'll fix myself, reform myself, no, my friends, it's not going to work. Um, you may reject mercy offered by Jesus and think you can just reform yourself. Maybe even take a little bit of Jesus' teaching with you. and Be like, okay, I like what he said, but I don't buy this whole, you know, this whole life, death, resurrection thing. But understand the process of trying to reform yourself is a great danger in that. Jesus actually goes on to say here that, that you will end up worse than when you started, Okay? If you just try to reform yourself with moralism or even principles of Christianity without coming to the person and work of Christ, it actually makes it much worse. People who think Christianity is just abandoning the immorality for morality many times end up in worse shape. That's why he says, look at verse 43. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, passed through warless places, seeking rest, finds none. Then it says, I'll return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, put in order. And then it goes and brings its seven other spirits, more evil than itself. They enter and dwell there, the last day of the person is worse than the first, so also it will be with this evil generation. Only the mercy and power of Jesus can permanently remove the strong man. See so what he's talking about here? Because when he removes, get this now, when he removes them, when God saves you and the Holy Spirit comes and takes up residence in your heart, he kicks out whatever's there, and he doesn't put up a rent sign in the front yard, okay? <laughs> no one's allowed to come in. There's no rent sign there. He takes up residence himself constantly to keep out unwanted guests, But if you sweep your heart clean, be like, I'm gonna clean myself up, reform myself through morality and good deeds, you have no guard, right? You have no guard keeping it, keeping out. Mercy triumphs over self-transformation. No matter how beat down you are by sin, Satan, the world system, even by religion itself, know that the mercy of God extends to you, but you have to reach out. You have to take the hand of mercy being given to you. Number three, God's mercy, final one, God's mercy is greater than rebellion. Down at the very end of this passage, look down at verse 39. He answered them, Jesus said, an evil, adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. So here we find Jesus making a comparison between himself and this guy named Jonah. He was a prophet in the Old Testament. Uh, You may be familiar with Jonah because you may have heard Jonah and the whale, right? That's kind of like, I worked around unbelievers uh, quite a lot, and that's like the one story they seem to know, it's Jonah and the whale. And notice that he talks about Nineveh in verse 41 here. Nineveh was the city that Jonah was sent to. Now, understand something. When Jesus says here, um, talks about comparing them to Nineveh, that's a strong statement. Let me remind you who Nineveh was. Uh, Nahum 3 actually gives us a commentary on the city. It says, Woe to the bloody city, all full of liars and plunder, no end to the prey, the crack of the whip, rumble of the wheel, galloping horse, bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword, glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, Dead bodies without end, they stumble over the bodies. That that's a description of the city of Nineveh. I mean it was it was awful. I mean the history actually we have recorded history about them. They would throw out baby girls to die of exposure because they wanted guys, you know, wanted boys to be able to fill their armies with. They'd push aside the poor, the weak, the wounded to die of hunger. They entertain themselves in these kind of gladiator type games, throwing human beings out to animals to to watch them get destroyed based on just entertainment purposes. Archaeology confirmed um, uh, to confirm this about them. They talked about how they how they would defeat their enemies. They would they would tear their lips off, tear their hands off, flay them alive. I mean, it just it goes on. They pile corpses heads in the front. I mean, it was a very wicked, deadly city. And you would think that if anybody, if there's any description of anybody being beyond the mercy of God, it'd be them. Okay, it'd be it definitely would be them. But the book of Jonah, which Jesus compared himself to here, records how God sent a very reluctant Jonah <laughs> with probably the world's worst gospel presentation ever. <laughs> it wasn't even turn or burn. It was just burn. That's all he said to them. You are going to die, and I'm going to watch. Right? That's all he said. Um, he goes and calls for repentance. And they did. <laughs> they sat off in ashes. They repented. You know what God did? God showed mercy. God saw. He saw the brokenness. He saw the injustice, he saw the sin, he saw the destruction, and yet he still saw them, those people, as sheep without a shepherd. They weren't people who just needed to shape up or get moral or keep some rules. They were people who needed to know the living God. They were people who needed to be shown mercy because judgment was coming. Right, And Jesus is saying that that's how he sees people. Do you have eyes to see people today? How God sees you. Do you see people as God sees you? He sees you as one in need of mercy. He takes a disposition not of a... Think about this. God takes a disposition with you not of a a policeman looking to incarcerate a felon or a judge looking to condemn the guilty, but rather a surgeon looking to heal, right? That's that's the, the, the disposition he takes. A God looking to forgive. But if you reject this offer of mercy, the judge, jury, and executioner will appear when you die. As Hebrews says, there's coming a judgment, and you will stand before that. And this is a very loving thing to say to you. You may be uncomfortable with this, but that is a reality that is going to happen. And it won't go well for you, because that judge during executioner is going to be Jesus himself. But see his disposition now of mercy this morning. He has already showed you his mercy in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago. We've got record of it right here in this gospel. Um, you say, but what, what did Jesus do to bring us mercy? Right? What did he do? Why would God be this way? Oh, he, he did what no other person in the history of the world had ever done. He, he did the opposite of what everyone thought he should have done, right? Think about when he says he's great, something greater than the temple is here, something greater than Jonah is here. Just think about the comparison with Jonah for a second. If you're familiar with that story, think about this. While Jonah ran away from the city in bitterness... Jesus ran towards the city, it says in the Gospel of Luke, with his face set towards Jerusalem. Uh, While Jonah looked at the city of rebels and got frustrated and mad at their sin, Jesus looked at the city and he wept and mourned over it. While Jonah sat under a tree and cringed at the repentance of a city, at the city calling for judgment on them, what did Jesus do? Jesus hung on a tree and he cried out for mercy. And what did he say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do? And while Jonah completed the mission that God sent him on reluctantly, he didn't want to do it, Jesus completed the mission, as Hebrews says, for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross. While Jonah about died on a mission that he hated, Jesus was murdered on a mission in which he loved. And while Jonah took the disposition of judgment and wanted to see God's wrath consume the city of rebels, Jesus took the disposition of mercy and had God's wrath about on him instead. That's why later on in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, Matthew verse, chapter 23 verse 37 he says, O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Jesus would say he, he wanted to gather the people under his wings like a hen gathers her brood. Right? He wanted to do that, he would, and he would do that at the cross. And he would, he would die in our place, die, absorb the wrath of God for us. The Bible calls this word propitiation, the absorbing of the wrath of God deserved for us at the end of the judgment I mentioned. Jesus took that on himself at the cross for you. I told this story before. It's a powerful imagery here. National Geographic told the story of a forest fire in Yellowstone National Park. Uh, some rangers were scurrying around the park after the fire, and they found a bird, uh, with nothing nothing was left of it except it but a carbonized, petrified shell covered in ashes, huddled up at the base of a tree. The ranger said so he took the stick, and he knocked the bird over with a stick. And when he did, three tiny chicks scurried out from underneath the shell of this bird. During the fire, the mother had apparently seen the fire realized there was no escape, and just grabbed her little chicks and just held up against the tree and was consumed by the fire, but in doing so, saved the little ones. That's that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. I want to gather you together. I will take it for you. I will huddle up over top of you, and I will take the judgment that is due you if you will receive me, right? Don't you see the disposition of God as one of mercy? (laughs) It's the same disposition no matter where you find yourself today. Divine mercy, guys, is not a mood of God. It's an attribute of God. Um, Thus, we as Christians have no need to fear that someday it'll run out. We have an infinite amount of mercy. So no matter where you are with Jesus today, understand there are no hoops. You need to jump through. There's no penance that needs to be performed. There's no absolution needed by some priest. You can go straight to God through Jesus and plead for mercy, and it is yours. A.W. Tozer said this. He said, We may plead for mercy for a lifetime in unbelief, and at the end of our days be still no more than sadly hopeful that we shall somewhere, sometime receive it. This, he said, is to starve to death just outside the banquet hall in which we have been warmly invited. Or we may, if we will, lay hold on the mercy of God by faith and enter the hall and sit down with the bold and avid souls who will not allow unbelief to keep them from the feast prepared For them. Consider these words, Isaiah 55, and I'll end with this: six and seven. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near, because he is. Let the wicked forsake his way, the unrighteous man his thoughts, let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Christian, when you remember meditate and dive deep into the mercy of God for you, when you understand that as that hen, as that bird, the mother bird over top of the, you know, taking on the the fire, the fury of the fire, the wrath of God for you, when you understand that and you scurry out from behind the tree, you know what? You realize, "I, I can be merciful now to people that transforms you. It changes your heart. It gives you deep compassion. It makes you a merciful person. You begin to see people with a disposition of mercy instead of a disposition of judgment or criticism. Your heart begins to break for those who need mercy. So as we go to, go to communion, if you're a follower of Christ today, you're welcome to take part of that. There's juice. And it's all in one little thing there. There's a bread on the top, some juice there. The point of that is we do this in remembrance of him as he's told us and we want to remember the, the wrath of God that Jesus took on for us the mercy that he has shown us so that, so that our hearts are changed and so that we then can have mercy towards others as a response to that. So there'll be some verses on the screen, some quotes. You can look at those, think. Um, and when you're ready, we take that bread and juice. There's nothing magical about that, okay? Make sure you understand. It's important I explain this to you. It is just bread and juice. But it's there for us to remember in a very tangible way to hold something in our hand the body of Jesus, it was broken for us, and the blood of Jesus was poured out for us. We do it in remembrance of him. If you're not a believer, or if you are a believer and you're struggling, it's okay. This is not a default, like, I must take this. Don't, we talked about that earlier. Don't, don't fall into the mode of, I've got to keep the rules, okay? God wants your heart, and then you will keep the rules, okay? God wants your heart. So if you're not ready, that's okay. There's people here who would love to pray for you, work through things. It's okay, all right? If you don't know Christ, we'd love to answer any questions you may have. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to be together. Thank you for this passage. I know it's a long one. Um, lots of things said here. And God, I just pray that you would help us to see on these pages both the actions of Christ and the mercy you've shown uh, towards people in need. And God, realize that we, we can't embody that. We can't be that, which you were or which you are. And we can't see people as you saw people until, God, we see the mercy that you've shown us. Until we realize that you have gathered us as a hen gathers her brood of chicks. We, we are uh, that you have done that for us. You've absorbed the wrath of God for You've saved us. You've transformed us. You've been merciful to us who don't deserve it, God. And in response to that, we can then turn around and be a merciful people, compassionate, um, loving towards those in need. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.